What are you doing under there? Hey, stop that. Don't eat that. That's not food. He's sucking down equal packets. You think 25 kids is too much? 25 kids for his birthday party? Don't put your tongue on the floor. He's putting his tongue on the floor. Here, here, have some more sugar packets. So what about entertainment? Should I get Barney? No, Barney. Maybe a clown. How about Bozo? Who's Bozo? Who's Bozo? Bozo the Clown, that's who Bozo is. When I was a kid, Bozo the Clown was the clown, bar none. George. With the orange hair and the big clown shirt with the ruffles. George. The TV show, he had cartoons. George! Forget Bozo, George. Bozo's out, he's finished. It's over for Bozo. You know, when I was a kid, we didn't have these elaborate birthday parties with, with catered food and entertainment. Remember my seventh birthday party. Blow out the candles! Blow out the candles! I said, blow out the damn candles! Stop it, Frank! You're killing us! Blow out the candles! Well, this time, you can blow out the candles. I have asthma. Hello! And welcome to The Place to Be, a Seinfeld podcast. I'm your host, Adam. And I'm Eric. On today's episode, we welcome Melanie Chartoff. Melanie has appeared in a number of films and TV shows, including Fridays, Parker Lewis Can't Lose, Newhart, Married with Children, Rugrats, and she's the author of the well-received book Odd Woman Out, Exposure in Essays and Stories. But Seinfeld fans will always remember her for playing Robin in the classic season five episode, The Fire, and we're so honored she can join us today. Thank you for being with us, Melanie. Thank you. So before we get into your role on Seinfeld, you actually did stand-up comedy at the Improv in New York for several years. So can you tell us what that was like and if you have any stories about Larry or Jerry from those years? Well, I knew Jerry mostly from the L.A. Improv, but yes, Larry and I, we were around each other. We were like cousins. You know, there was a whole bevy of us struggling with our premises, trying to turn them into stand-up. And in his case and my case, I think we had great premises, but they hadn't found their form yet. A lot of the material that Larry was doing ended up on Seinfeld as a story. Uh, for example, the masturbation episode that may be something you've discussed in the past. And I was <laughs> writing special material like comedy songs and character monologues and performing those. And they weren't like my good Carson minutes, but they just entertained in a theater theatrical situation. So they weren't good television monologues. Um, but yes, I was around Larry and also Bruce Mahler, who also ended up on Fridays. So when we all showed up to work together that first day, it was like family. You know, I felt really safe. And, you know, they're just nice Jewish boys. What could I say? Nice Jewish boys. <laughs> <laughs> and like you mentioned, you were part of the cast of Fridays, which co-starred Larry David and Michael Richards. Mm hmm. And that was kind of like ABC's version of Saturday Night Live. But I'm curious, did you ever audition for Saturday Night Live before Fridays? I was offered Saturday Night Live, actually. Um, after I finished Fridays, um, uh, Dick Ebersole was becoming, you know, taking over for Lorne Michaels. And he approached me and Larry and uh, Michael Richards, I think, to be on the new iteration but I was so burned out, frankly. I was so tired of that form. It was very stressful, you know, six days a week. And on the seventh day, we wrote we wrote it. Um, I just wanted to get back to acting. So I did pass. But now that you mention it, in 1975, I was new to New York. And I was in an off-Broadway show called The Proposition. It was an improv uh, musical from Cambridge with um, Jane Curtin. And I think we both auditioned for the early phases of Saturday Night Live. And I think I remember when she got it, I felt like, well, I should be doing this show. And then a few years later, I actually ended up in the same sort of format where I could play lots of different characters and do lots of my own material, you know, integrated in. So and I did have close encounters with Saturday Night Live twice at two different periods. And so how did the role on Fridays come about? I had an agent at William Morris, and she arranged an audition. Most of my work has been from auditions. Um, and then um, uh, there was a series of auditions and screen tests. And I remember Mary Edith and Mary Edith Burrell and I 
did some long prolonged improvised scene. And then I wasn't hired. So I went into a deep depression and started overeating and getting stoned all the time after my stand-up act at the improv. Uh, they had hired the ABC executive on the show's wife uh, for the kind of female newscaster entity. And then they fired her and I was already deep into my depression. And then they called me up and said, go to costumes, you've been hired. And it took me a few days to get over the depression. I was sort of in the gravity of the depression. <laughs> <laughs> and they had already sort of gelled as an ensemble when I came on board. So I had to ooze my way into it and, and to become a part of it. And then being the newscaster on the show, I felt a little more set apart. I didn't get to be in as many sketches or developing my characters like some of the other. Well, all the guys got their characters developed. I don't think any of the women got many characters developed. It was just a very, what can I say? The guys just didn't get female humor at that time. So um, it wasn't a locker room. They treated us respectfully, but we did not get our material on very often. So there I was. I, I had... I had screen tested and auditioned, not been chosen, then chosen. Yeah, I'm actually reading your book now. And in the book, you talk about that, that a lot of your sketches on Fridays got rejected in favor of other performers like Michael Richards, for example. So can you tell us more about that and just what that was like for you at the time? It was it was difficult because the loudest, um, most life risking Mark Blankfield and Michael uh, were terrific. I mean, their characters were so far over the top. I was a more subtle sort of writer. Um, and I think it was very hard to be heard above the din at the level of Michael Richards or Andy Kaufman or uh, Mark Blankfield. So just in terms of physical power and uh, risk-taking, the guys got their material on more than we did. I have a different style of writing and a kind of a a demure sort of sensibility. So I didn't really have a fighting chance, but I, I enjoyed supporting Michael. We did the Battle Boy sketches together, which were hilarious, and some of the Dick sketches, which are on YouTube, if anybody wants to look them up. And I was Larry's straight woman too, and it was always an honor. All the guys were great writers, so I can't complain. Yeah, Larry Charles also wrote on that show, right? Oh, Larry, yes. He wrote Diner of the Living Dead, uh, which got us thrown off the air in most of the southern states, oddly. They didn't like cannibalism as a premise. This was well before the zombie movement, uh, when <laughs> zombies became so commercial. So we had things like uh, zombie waitresses serving a hand sandwich. You'd see like a hand between two slices of rye bread. Um, a side of spleen, you'd see like a bunch of little spleens on a platter, deep fried. I mean, it was wacky and wonderful. And I think Larry wrote my episodes on, on Seinfeld, too, actually. <laughs> and I'm curious, when you're on a show like that, where everyone's competing for airtime, are you able to socialize with the cast outside the show at all? Or did you really only see them when you were working? Well, we didn't have any restaurants to hang out with that were open like after work. Like in New York, the whole group of not ready for primetime players and the writers would go out to one of the like many restaurants in the area around Rockefeller Center. There was really no place for us to go like after 10 o'clock at night in um, the Silver Lake Las Feliz area, which was where ABC Prospect was. So um, I also think we were also exhausted. And between you guys and me and whoever's listening, there was a drug issue on the show where a lot of the writers would do a drug that kept them up all night. Um, and we professionals like me, I was like fresh off the Broadway stage and the off Broadway stage. We sort of like to keep conventional hours and, you know, keep our energy together. So we didn't get to hang out that much, but subsequently I've hung out with Mary Edith Burrell, who lives in North Carolina, and gotten close with, with other of the cast, but we didn't hang out, no. There was two different speeds. There was like caffeinated, cocained, and like normal, like I was. So it was hard <laughs> to hang out at that speed. And a lot of the guests we've had on the show talk about how Michael Richards was very serious and kind of kept to himself on the set. So was that your experience working with him on Fridays? Yeah, he was very protective of, of his creativity. Um, he and I got along really well. We improvised really well together. But um, he could be very exclusive and had nothing to do with 
sexism or racism or anything like that that has haunted him. It just had to do with him being very protective of his creation and really needing to forewall it and really not letting anybody interrupt it. He had a flow and it wasn't a collaborative flow when he was in that phase. So then several years later, you got to reunite with some of your Friday's co-stars when you appeared on Seinfeld in the classic season five episode, The Fire. So did you have to audition for that role or did they write that part for you? No, they wrote that for me. It was really sweet. I was actually standing in the debris of my chimney after the 1994 earthquake with the FEMA, you know, representative, Federal Emergency Management Relief. Everybody on my block's chimney went into everybody else's driveway. So they were assessing how much money I would get for my chimney and my driveway. And my agent called on a Sunday and said, can you do this part? And I read it. And to me, it wasn't like a great part. It wasn't a funny part. It was a straight woman part. But I wanted to play. And I said, well, sure. And I sort of went to work the next day. And then we shot it the next day. There wasn't much rehearsal or anything like that. But it was really fun to work with Jason. And uh, John Favreau actually played Bozo the Clown in that episode. <laughs> so um, it was a really fun shoot. And then, of course, I got to do the final episode which was a party, let me tell you. None of us got a script. None of us could do any work. We all saw each other like outside our trailers. We all got trailers. Larry was like Robin Hood. He was robbing the network to give to his friends. We all had the <laughs> best meals. I mean, it was like a week from heaven as far as shooting series goes. And I got to hang out with, you know, the Soup Nazi and, you know, all the, all the wonderful characters that I had, you know, watched over the years. So it was fun. And I didn't know my line until just before I went on, Larry said, say this. So it wasn't like a work of creative genius. I just sort of did what I was told. And we're definitely going to ask you more about the finale, but first, just going back a little bit, um, were you ever considered for any other roles on Seinfeld before you appeared on the show? No, I was on a series um, already, so I wasn't available. Um, but I, I would have, but I just never got the opportunity. And were Larry David, Larry Charles, and Michael Richards any different on Seinfeld compared to Fridays? Um, they were richer. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody could afford a better therapist, so everybody was calmer. Um, it was a more normal schedule, so I think they were far less frazzled on the Seinfeld set than they were on you know, the Friday set. And Jerry, he was always very kind of comfortable in his skin. Um, I had been around him and George Shapiro, beloved George Shapiro, um, Jerry's late manager, a lot because of my friendship with Andy Kaufman. And Jerry was always like this laid back, you know, New Jersey, no, Long Island Jewish guy. I mean, he was just really easy, never any stress. And he kind of walked through the show. I thought he was just playing himself. He was a perfect in it. <laughs> so your first scene in this episode was with Jason at Monk's when your kid is under the table. Um, first of all, do you remember if anyone was actually under the table during that scene? And also, was there really a kid on the set saying the lines or was that dubbed in later? I do remember because they didn't hire a kid. They saved the salary. So it was all done in voiceover and uh, some jostling of the table. I think somebody was under the table moving it like the kid was erupting in childlike tantrum. Uh, but no, they didn't hire a kid to be on the set. However, when we did do the fire scene, there were kids on the set, but they were extras. You see, they didn't have any lines, so they were cheap. Um, <laughs> you know, when you get lines or special material, you get a lot more payment than if you don't speak. So they were muted children. And I just have to say, there are certain moments in the series that always remind me of my dad because they make him laugh every time. And one of those moments is the way you deliver the line when you say, forget about Bozo, George. Bozo's out. He's finished. It's over for Bozo. <laughs> so um, I'm curious, was that your choice to deliver the line that way? Or did Larry give, give you that direction to say the line that way? Because it seems like a very Larry David line to me. Uh, yeah, it was real cynical and sardonic, but I didn't need any direction to say it that way. It was sort of kind of built in. Now, Larry is very freewheeling. I mean, we hardly shot any takes. We did everything in like one take. Um, and he'd say, that's fine. 
uh, he hired me for who I was, and um, you know, I just sort of nailed it in the first take. So. Oh, it was so good. It was fun. <laughs> I yeah, I wish I could say it took me months of work, but no, really, I just like the other line on the final Seinfeld. I just delivered the writing, which made it pretty smooth and simple. <laughs> Yeah, the reason why I asked if you got any direction in that particular scene is because I think certain lines on Seinfeld, if you're not familiar with the tone of the show, you could say the line in a completely different way and it just wouldn't have the same effect. But I thought the way you delivered that line was just perfect. Well, I know that Larry Charles did say to me, you got to talk to to Jason like you don't like him. You know, uh, nobody likes him. And I didn't have that preconceived notion. I just met Jason and I hadn't been watching the show. I was busy. So um, Larry Charles did say to me before I did it, nobody, everybody sort of tolerates um, George. So make sure you sound like you're tolerating him when you say it. So that was the direction I did get. Well, yeah, of course, no one can tolerate George. But then in the next scene, you have this classic scene where George is running away from the fire and knocking over all the women and children, which really makes you dislike him. Um, so what do you remember about filming that scene? Well, they had a wonderful woman on a walker. You know, she's playing an older woman. That right. she really was. And she took quite a stunt tumble, you know, when we shot the episode. So yeah. when the two of us are standing, repro- he's sitting on the back of the fire truck and the medic's truck, and he and I are just staring at him, reproaching him. We didn't have to do much. I mean, the premise really just supported the humor. Uh, and when I said, I heard you <laughs> say, you know, out of the way or whatever I said, I mean, it was, you, he said something like, um, who says women and children need to get out first? I was leading the way. And then we <laughs> We just had to go, you know, just react to that. And that's what added to the humor. Yeah. And your line reading right there of when you're yelling at him, like, I heard the knock them down in a mad panic and you ran out. You left everyone behind. Seinfeld has this great way of doing these comedic scenes that are also dramatic. And you just nail it in that scene right there with that reading. Like it's perfectly capturing that that motif that Seinfeld does. Thank you. They make it easy when they write when they write them like that, you know. <laughs> I was trying to lead the way. We needed a leader, someone to lead the way to safety. <laughs> but you yelled, "Get out of my way!" Because, because, as the leader, if I die, then all hope is lost. <laughs> Who would lead? <laughs> Instead of castigating me, you should all be thanking me. What kind of a topsy-turvy world do we live in where where heroes are cast as villains, brave men as cowards? But I saw you push the women and children out of the way in a mad panic. I saw you knock them down. And when you ran out, you left everyone behind. Seemingly. Seemingly. To the untrained eye, I can fully understand how you got that impression. What looked like pushing, what looked like knocking down, was a safety precaution. In a fire, you stay close to the ground, am I right? (laughs) And when I ran out that door, I was not leaving anyone behind. Oh, quite the contrary. I risked my life making sure that exit was clear. Any other questions? How do you live with yourself? It's not easy. So did you make any suggestions during that scene? Like, Larry, can we do this again? Or can I try it this way instead? Or was it just one take and done? Um, I always ask for another take because I'm a real perfectionist. But Larry said, no, it's fine. I think we got it. I think he just liked to get through the day quickly. <laughs> You also had the scene at the end of the episode with friend of the show, Dom Herrera, who played Ronnie Kay, the prop comic. So did you get to interact with him at all that week? Oh, sure. I mean, we, we hung out and around. I can't say anything profound came out of it that would be worth reporting to you. But yeah, we, we hung around. I knew him from the improv club, too. So there was kind of already an easy familiarity, like we went to college together or something like that. Do you have a favorite memory from filming that episode? Yeah, hanging around with Jason. He's such a flirt. Um, and he was so much fun. 
and um, we still are in touch from time to time. No, just what a kind of, he was also a theater professional and uh, had had a lot of stage experience. I think he was in Guys and Dolls on Broadway. I mean, many shows. I had had a lot of stage experience as well. So we both had that kind of professional deportment, which you can break up with like some fun on the side, but always like the work is the most important thing. And, and I really appreciated that about him. Yeah, it seems like no one has anything bad to say about Jason. <laughs> no, he's really solid. A good director, a good actor, a good singer. Um, terrific guy. Oh, yeah. Terrific. Just so talented. And the opposite of George Stanza. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, um, everybody talks about the misanthropic character that Larry has gone on to play on Curb. Um, and he's really consummated a, a kind of a misanthropic aspect of himself. But I have to say, he, um, nice guy. I mean, really sweet, empathic, caring. Um, not at all the kind of uh, prick he plays on, on Curb. He just so so easily topples kind of iconic, you know, mythology, kind of like Don Quixote saying, well, why? Why? Why can't I wear the shoes from the Holocaust exhibit? You know, why? why? I mean, he, he doesn't have any sac he has no sacred cows. And I think he's just brilliant in finding all those kind of tender spots we hold in society. But, oh, no, we can't go there. He, he goes there. So. um Sweet guy. He and I used to trade apartments um, when we had breaks from Fridays. I had a Hollywood apartment and he had a New York apartment in the uh, Hell's Kitchen area, not far from the improv. I think it was called the Manhattan Plaza. And a lot of uh, hard up actors, writers, dancers got deals there. So he had this swanky building. And when I arrived at the building, somebody named Kramer was there to welcome me. Um, he came with the apartment. He um, had been set up, or he said he'd been set up to guide me around. He took me to the best breakfast place on 10th Avenue, uh, played, me, played me like six games of racquetball at, at the racquetball court in Manhattan Plaza. And this guy Kramer uh, got a lot of um, heat from doing, from being named, you know, has, having his name used on the show, and actually started a touring uh, company, New York Guide and Touring situation and did very well for a number of years while Seinfeld is on just milking the association you know very smart businessman I might add well we've actually been on that tour he still does it as far as I know oh is that true <laughs> oh yeah I mean I don't know about during you know the pandemic and everything but um you know up until then at least you know he was doing it and Eric and oh, I actually went on that a is tour so funny years oh ago. and where did yeah. he take you. He took you to like uh, the diner or like places that run Seinfeld. Yeah, exactly. So I think about the farthest up in Manhattan we went to was yeah Tom's restaurant. You know, like up to yeah, and then uh, kind of took us around yeah like the West Side there, Hell's Kitchen, and showed us um, you know all these different spots and like you know was asking us like trivia questions and talking about different things about the show and just telling his stories. And it was, it, it was just an experience. It was, just, Oh, we went to the soup place, you know, the soup Nazi, of course. And what, what did he charge you for this? Eric, I think it was 3750, right? The, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. The price. I, got, the price it, I got it for free. I just want you to know I got it for free. Come well, on. I would hope I was, so. I was the trial perhaps I was uh, the tryout so he could make it better for you. And did you get to play racquetball with him at the Manhattan Plaza? No. <laughs> he did not, no. So no. you have the full couple up on us. <laughs> he let me beat him. That's how, how well I made out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Um, but so we were talking a little, you, you mentioned it a few times already. Uh, the finale, though, a few years later after your episode, they invited you to come back. So can you take us through a little bit of what it was like filming that? Like, you know, adding to what you said earlier. Well, none of us knew what we were to do in the show, because as I said, he never gave us a script. So we were sitting on the lake that Gilligan's Island was um, filmed at. That was where my uh, my dressing room was and the makeup trailer was. And we were sitting on the porch of some fake, you know, it's just a porch, no house behind it, just a fake porch. And uh, he came up and he, he said to everybody, it's a trial and you're all testifying against George and, and, and Julia and uh, Michael and Jerry. And then of course we got the whole picture. He didn't give us the lines, but he did tell us the situation. 
And I was just giggling. I thought it was so clever and fun. I, I just couldn't wait to to get my part and do my thing. Um, it was a very pleasant day. I remember we were eating lunch on the porch when he strolled up. Uh, Larry always had a very characteristic stroll. He's very long limbed. And I think he's made kind of a cartoon kind of caricature out of that. He really um, uses that on the series, uh, on the uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm series. He kind of lopes, kind of lopes along. And um, I could never keep up with him because he took really big loping steps. <laughs> but that's all I remember. I do remember, um, maybe I shouldn't say this, I think we were all paid favored nations, which means equivalent, but the money was really good on that episode. And it was supposed to be a half hour episode. But Larry managed to talk the network into making it an hour and a half. So um, the process was really long and drawn out and pricey for the network. And I have still captured like a lot of residuals every year from the clip shows and from the reruns and the syndication. And every time I see it syndicated, ka-ching, I go and I get my hair cut. Uh, you know, it's just like a big day. So it's been a very generous couple of episodes for me. I have to uh, say thank you, Larry, for that. And you mentioned hanging out with the Soup Nazi. Any other guest stars that you talked to that week? The um, the, the librarian, the truant like librarian guy. I forgot his oh, name. Wonderful Lippen. actor. They passed away. Yeah. Uh, what's his name? Do you remember? Uh, Philip Baker Hall. Philip Baker Hall. Loved hanging with him. He was a theater guy. And we, um, you know, we really, really had a lot of fun just hanging out and doing one-liners with each other. Let's see, who else? I guess I interface with everybody, but, you know, you're assigned to a makeup chair and a hair person, and you're kind of isolated while they work on you. And then you're just put on the set where everybody's concentrating for, you know, focusing. I did hang out with John Lithgow, however, who was around. I think he was shooting something on another stage. So I had known him since I was like 14. Um, I was uh, brought up in New Haven, Connecticut, the home of Long Wharf Theater, and he was in several shows there. And I was an apprentice in the, the children's company and, you know, doing odd jobs. So I got to hang out with him a little bit. And he was a delight. But I can't remember, you know, guys, it's almost 30 years ago. Let it go. <laughs> God's sake. <laughs> I've moved on. I've moved on, for God's sake. It's over. It's out. It's yeah. over for Seinfeld. Over for Seinfeld, exactly. <laughs> so uh, you kind of mentioned this a little earlier, but did you attend the rap party for Seinfeld at the after the finale? I did. I had re I attended a few rap parties. I'm not sure which was which. One was at the Hayden, not the Hayden Planetarium, the Griffith Park Observatory here in Los Angeles, which is our version of the, the Hayden Planetarium. Um, and we all got like Pez dispensers and, you know, usually you'd get a lot of swag, but they were a little chintzy on the swag. Um, but we were in the kind of the, the, uh, celestial room, uh, where you see the heavens over your, your head. And then we, we watched the episode. And I remember Larry arrived that night in a completely souped up brand new leather, perfect smelling Lexus that the network had just given him. And I said, Larry, I mean, ah, things have really changed. Are you happy now? Because he'd always been so unhappy and tortured. He said, no, I just had better therapy. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say, he may deny it, but I think he's really happy now. I think all his dreams have come true. He's dating lots of younger women. Um, he can do another season of Curb as soon as he gets enough episodes together. I mean, he's one of the richest people I know uh, in this industry. And who would have thought he would be the least likely, if you knew him when I knew him, to have made it this big and be so much belonging, you know, to the, the mainstream. He found it, he felt himself to be a rebel. But now he's an in-crowd rebel. So that's the price he paid for being successful. Did you ever audition for Curb? No. In fact, I saw Jeff Garland at something, you know, a couple of years after it went up and he looked at me. He, we, I went up to him and he just said, Melanie, we're trying to think of what to do with you. We can't figure out what to do with you. 
I said, well, <laughs> should I write something? He says, no, whatever you do, don't write anything. Larry won't let anybody write anything. So I just know, I think they've used so many movie stars and stuff who are really big name personalities playing themselves. And I'm just not that big a name of personality at this juncture to be considered. Um, but all my friends, Richie Lewis was a friend of mine. He used to study improv with me back in the 70s, actually. Um, so many of my friends have been on and uh, you know, it's a delightful, wonderful show. He breaks all the rules. Well, before we move on to our final segment, uh, we have to ask you about Rugrats. I mean, we grew up with that show and you were obviously the voice of Dee Dee Pickles. So we'd love to hear more about that role and just how it came about. I auditioned like most good little actresses. I went to the Nickelodeon studios and I auditioned and the adjectives that they used to describe Dee Dee so clearly were adjectives that everyone would use to describe my own mother that it wasn't a very hard role to incarnate, actually. Um, she was anxious and repressed and always trying to do the, the right thing, the good thing as a mom and as a wife. And it, um, I just basically used my mother's voice, which is just like my voice, only 78 RPM. It's just a little faster and a little vibrating, you know, a little <laughs> more frequently uh, than my voice. So it wasn't that hard. And Minka was just all I remembered about my grandmothers who passed away when I was very young. Minka was kind of an amalgamation of my grandmothers and all the producers' grandmothers. They all had a fond remembrance of a, a Russian or Yiddish grandmother. And so I tried to put them all together with a bit of a Yiddish accent. And, you know, they wanted her gruff sometimes. And, you know, so um, wasn't too hard. And my mom, when I ultimately told her that I was using her voice for a cartoon character, was appeased because I bought her a condo with the money. <laughs> there you go. What could she say, really? She lives very well. She still does. She's going to be 99 in a few weeks going to see oh. her. Yeah, she's in Hamden, Connecticut. Um, oh. Yeah. I know, so she, I know exactly what it is. I, I grew up on the Rhode Island, Connecticut border. So. Oh, 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 yeah. Um, I'll be doing a, a, a celebrity autograph show, signing copies of my book. Uh, at a hotel outside of Boston, actually, for uh, the weekend before. And then I'll go down and, and visit my mom for a few days, which is, is great. And I'll see some of my cousins, too, which is uh, terrific. Oh, that's so awesome. It's great. Um, so going back to Dee Dee, did you have any say on how the character would look on the show? No, not a thing. I mean, it's a completely different department. You know, people think that um, actors who work on television shows hang out with everybody. But our work is so segregated, at least on Rugrats. Um, I recorded almost never with anybody else in the booth behind a glass wall. And the engineer was in the other room and the director. Never met the writers, never met the animators. But I knew that I, I saw evidence of them when I would go into the men's room, if the ladies' room was locked, I'd go into the men's room at the Claskin uh, uh, Shupo Animation House, and I would see naked pictures of Dee Dee Pickles, like with a whip and like knee-high boots, um, saying all these, in a cloud, saying all these like really obscene things. I mean, there was like fetishists about Dee Dee Pickles. So, oh, um, childhood ruined. <laughs> I know. But in later years, I got to hang out with Monica Piper, who was one of the head writers. She won an Emmy for one of the episodes. Um, and uh, I got to fraternize with other of the writers who said, I, I worked on your episode. It was like, oh, hello. <laughs> Sometimes I, I walked through the um, animation rooms on the way to the ladies room. And I would see people um, making faces in the mirror, trying to imitate me so that they could make the mouth like me. And as the years went by that I was uh, voicing the character, the character's face began to move more and more like mine and its forehead get higher like mine. And uh, I felt like my soul was being, you know, ripped out of my body. Um, but I did so well on that show, bought this house, for example, and um, it's been my security uh, continuously for, for many years. And it was a great show. I was very proud of being the the narrator of the Hanukkah special, you know, and being part of the first animated Passover special. Uh, these were historical kind of turning points that I was fortunate enough to be in. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say is because I was brought up Catholic, um, really one of my first exposures to like Judaism and Jewish culture was from the Rugrats. And that was one of the things I'd always look forward to. I loved the Hanukkah special so much. That was like one of my favorites. Oh, that's so nice to hear. I, I, I feel proud of that. Having been part of that, I um, I can't say I feel really ashamed of any series I've ever done, except for Don't Tell Anybody, Weird Science. Oh, <laughs> whoever saw that I played the intermittent mother to the boys and I just thought it was so like not good for little boys. I mean, I really didn't think it was um, it was very sexist, in my opinion, and I refused to say of a lot of the lines that they gave me. That was a place I really did have some influence. The producer had produced Parker Lewis Can't Lose. And so couple times I turned it down. I said, I, I won't say Hooters. I, I just, this my character. The mother would not say Hooters. And then they doubled my salary. And then they wow. took out Hooters. So I felt like, okay, they're working with me on this. But, um, you know, I, I, there are certain limits I had to what I could say or be part of. And that, that show started really wearing on my moral code. Did you have any examples like that on Rugrats? I mean, I know obviously you was an enjoyable experience, but did you have any say on the character or the stories or anything like that? Well, I did have to report that my own mother was offended by the depiction of Minka and Boris. My mother, who had endured some anti-Semitism when she was a little girl growing up, and the Holocaust was fresh enough in her imagination that she had a fear of uh, negative depictions of Jews. So I had to report to the writing and animation staff that my mother felt very threatened by the depiction. She felt they were unnecessarily uh, ethnic. Um, although the animators and creators and me were extremely loving of the Jewish culture, it, it hit a sore spot for her. You know, she, like many people today, is very sensitive around racism and bias and prejudice. I mean, these are really considerations, jokes that are funny to you and me may not be funny to other people. Um, and she so I had to report that to them. And they said they'd been getting other anti-defamation uh, letters from various committees stating they felt that the characters were negative stereotypes. So I think they've softened them up, you know, in recent years. And I don't think they have the kind of Jewish accents that Michael Bell and I did as Boris and Minka uh, anymore. And like you mentioned, you recorded a lot of the episodes on your own. You know, you didn't really record with any of the other cast members. So what was your schedule like on the show? Like, would you come in to record one episode a day? Would you record multiple episodes? How did that work? We get a script in advance and um, we'd show up and we would read the lines you know, four or five different ways, imagining how our fellow cast member might be cueing us. And then on occasion, I did work with the wonderful Jack Riley, who played the monotonal stew. Um, <laughs> those were my most fun recording sessions. And also with Michael Bell, who played, um, uh, what was the character's name? Stu, uh, Stu's brother, Drew. Yeah, he played Drew. Drew. And he played several other characters on the show. And I played Mrs. Reptar. I don't know if you saw that special episode. Oh, we, we did a musical, musical called Reptar on Ice. And <laughs> yeah. uh, John Shuck played um, Reptar and I played his wife, who was just like kind of a, you know, classic ingenue. We got to sing opera together, stupid songs about Reptar, I love you. You know, it's just hilarious. So um, I did on occasion work with Michael Bell and Jack Riley, and those days were the most fun. I never recorded with the children because they, of course, except for Angelica uh, and the parents never spoke to each other. The whole premise was that we were oblivious to the children having a language and they were sort of oblivious to us. Angelica was the go between. Um, her character could speak baby and could speak grown up. So she's the only one I ever recorded with of the children. So when you recorded the pilot episode, what was your first impression when you watched it? Was there a screening or anything like that? I'm so glad you asked me that because I put it to bed. You know, you um, record something animated and then they have to animate it. So I think about a year later, I was invited to come to the uh, screening of the first episode. 
And I showed up with Jack Riley, who is a dear friend. And we sat there and we were absolutely amazed to hear our voices coming out of these creatures that didn't look at all like us, but were clearly embodying our feelings, our vocal tonalities, our accents. It was like, that was one of the most thrilling experiences I've had as a voice actor, seeing that show incarnated. It was an absolute thrill. And then as the years rolled by, um, seeing all the things they did. One of my favorite episodes on Rugrats was all animated from the dog's point of view. So the oh, do- yeah. The dog only understood humans when they said things like, Spike, here's your food, or Spike, go for a walk. And the rest of it was like, it was all like gibberish. And I thought that was brilliant, actually. That's one of my favorite episodes. Oh, yeah. That, that one was great. Um, how about the Rugrats movies? Was the process any different for those? Yes, because we went to Paramount, a real grown-up movie studio, and we had day passes and got to eat at the cafeteria. And those were like four-hour sessions. Um, and, you know, we got lots of breaks and stuff. Um, for example, the character that I did, which is a character voice, it's not my real voice, can be strenuous. Um, you know, after a few hours, you do, you need a break. You need to like, go. Oh, you just kind of go like that. Um, so um, the uh, time I spent at the Nickelodeon studio was only like an hour per episode. And the, the episodes were only 11 minutes. So right. <laughs> you know, we would do it every which way. And then, you know, sometimes the director would say to me, doesn't sound like you're carrying the baby. You know, um, it's green screen acting. You don't have any props. You don't have any other people. You don't have a visual of what the characters are going to look like because they recorded voice first, animated to the voice. I've done other series where they animate it first and you have to lip sync with the animation. I find that much harder. But it was fun to just uh, do what I do and then have the animators shape the character to that. And you kind of touched on it a little bit. You talked about Spike's episode. Do you have any other favorite episodes from the series or a favorite scene that you performed in? I love the potty training episode where the babies are trying to figure out how they are supposed to go to the bathroom. They're all terrified of the toilet. These are fantasies that I had myself. The writers really knew how to get into a child's mind. But I had fears of being sucked down in a cyclone into the toilet bowl. And so they had that, of course, and then they imitate the dog, Spike, and they try to lift their legs and pee on the trees. And I think that's a real that's a real learning tool for a lot of parents of young children. Um, the, the show really had a double entendre. It was a show for babies, but it was also a show for um, very hip adults. Uh, had a very hip demographic, not an age demographic, a sort of psychological demographic. And... Um, yeah, it was a pleasure to be part of that. I, I thought it was just a great, rich, groundbreaking experience, again, that I got to be part of. Very lucky. Well, thank you for being such a wonderful part of our childhood. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're personally welcome. I did it for you. <laughs> All right. So before we let you go, we're just going to move on to our final segment. It's called This, That and the Other. So basically, we'll just ask you a question. And the first thing that comes to mind, you let us know. So first question, what is your favorite film? The Year of Living Dangerously. It's a classic uh, with Sigourney Weaver and um, Mel Gibson uh, back when he was a really wonderful actor. Um, I That film touched me in a very deep way. I, I have seen many wonderful films over the years, but I think that's still one of my favorites. Favorite band or musician? It changes. Um, I don't want to be disloyal to all of my favorites, but recently, uh, Saki Moto, uh, he wrote the score for a movie that David Bowie did, maybe in the 70s or 80s, called Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. And um, he's been ill, so they've been showing a lot of recordings of him on YouTube. And there's a recording of Saki Moto playing Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, that puts me in a trance. It's so eloquent and simple and spare. So he's one of my favorite musicians. This week, I'm very fickle. 
Back in the day when I was on Fridays, I was fresh off the Broadway stage. So I didn't know anything about popular rock music or grunge or garage band or anything. And I was so lucky because every week we'd have a new hit band. You know, Devo, The Clash, The Boomtown Rats, Bonnie Raitt. I mean, I got to meet and hang out like a VIP at all of their concerts and studio recordings. And um, it was a real privilege. I got to hang out with gifted, you know, pro prodigious, um, very prolific musicians, all of whom were like, at the moment in time, when I got to interface, they were at their peak. Boz Skaggs, Kenny Loggins. We had the greatest, greatest guests. We even had the Plasmatics, who were so obscene. Um, <laughs> I had to hide my eyes. I introduced them, and I think I fled from the set. So I learned a lot while I was doing Fridays about music and musicians not of the Broadway ilk. What role or performance are you proudest of? Unfortunately, it was in the theater, so only about a thousand people a night saw it. There's a musical called March of the Falsettos. Uh, I think it went on to Broadway to be called Falsettos, but I premiered um, a song on, uh, out here. We did it at the Huntington Hartford Theater, uh, a song called I'm Breaking Down, which is a wife finding out her husband's a homosexual and having a ner nervous breakdown on the stage. And... Um, I get a standing ovation for it in the middle of the show every night. It was a real showstopper. And um, I have a recording of it, and the applause just goes on and on. So I have to say, I haven't gotten applause like that in anything else. Nobody applauds on a, on a TV set very much. But I got a lot of applause for that. And I knew I moved people, and I could feel myself moved by moving them. And that's what we live for as actors, feeling that communal passing of feelings back and forth, which you feel most in a live theater situation. Funniest or most unpredictable actor you've ever worked with? Well, Andy Kaufman, I have to say. Um, not necessarily in a good way either. I was really mad at him for the, the, the uh, stunts he pulled on Fridays and that the producers went along with it. We all knew what was going to happen, but I felt he was really putting the show down and, uh, I didn't like it. I, I knew Andy. I liked him. He was a really sweet, nice Jewish boy when we hung out in New York and when we hung out in L.A. too. He took me for my first macrobiotic food, turned me on to transcendental meditation. But I uh, I did not like that incident that's all, all, always telegraphed and I'm always asked about it. Thank you for not asking me about it, but I'm always usually asked about it whenever I do an interview about the Andy Kaufman incident, which is on YouTube. And they actually did a movie about it called Man on the Moon, in which I was told I was too old to play myself. Um, so they had, And then Michael Richards was too old to play himself. We were quite insulted. And they had other actors playing us. Most memorable moment working on the set of a film or TV show? Well, I was doing a scene called um, Fighting Family on Fridays. And uh, this was about a family that didn't use their words or their indoor voices when they were triggered by anything. They just haul off and sock each other. So I'm playing an old lady and um, Mary Edith Burrell is playing my my daughter and she's washing the dishes and I bring the dishes, the dirty dishes over. I'm playing a very older woman stooped over, you know, white hair. And I say, Darling, let me help. I'm not too old to help you, you know. And she says, Ma, leave me alone. I got it handled. I can do my own dishes. And I said, no, please, let me help. Oh, let me spray the dishes. I'm good at spraying. And then she just goes, Ma, and she hauls off and socks me. Well, we staged this with a stunt coordinator. There was a mattress under the stage. I mean, everything was really planned out. But it was a live show. And in her zeal to, to get a laugh, she hit me in the jaw and one part of my jaw went into another and one of my two teeth broke off. And so I did what was planned and I fell to the ground, flipped over and fell on the ground. And then she was so sickened by what had happened <laughs> that when we went through the next few moments, they were all too real. She said, oh, mom, I'm sorry I decked you, but you just got on my nerves. And I said, well, you shouldn't hit your mother. You could break some teeth. And I actually had a broken tooth. Oh. So, uh, after that, we went through the whole scene and then I had a bleeding tooth like for the rest of the show and I'm sucking down blood and going through, you know, you couldn't stop. It was a live show. 
And then Mary Edith was so upset and they took me to the hospital afterward and then they had to get do an emergency dentistry and put a new tooth in and everything. Um, and then this made us even more famous because we were, uh, they showed it the episode on Entertainment Tonight on slow-mo and they commented on how I was at fault because I wasn't making eye contact with the person that was hitting me. And of course, I wasn't supposed to because I wasn't supposed to know she was going to hit me. It wasn't like we were in combat. So um, that was pretty memorable. And for her, too. I mean, we're still really good friends. And I understood because the stakes were really high on Fridays to get really good ratings. And the stress on the set was really key. Um, so that, I have to say, really impressed me. And I still think about that today. It was like a minor trauma. Oh, wow. <laughs> and. We also know you appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. So do you have a favorite story from being on that show? Yes. Actually, it's in my book. Um, I was on twice. Johnny really liked me. And um, he really wanted to play Ronald Reagan to my Nancy Reagan. Um, I was the Tina Fey of my day. I was doing all the political characters um, back then, you know, Rosalind Carter and um, uh, Jackie Kennedy and... I was playing Nancy Reagan a lot. And what I remember was I was so nervous. I don't know how I appeared like a normal person in the chair. When I sat down and looked at his face, it was like Mount Rushmore was speaking to me. And um, I carried on with the interview. It so, went so well that he invited me to come back. I have no idea how that happened. And then my William Morris agents were all so excited. So they walked me out to my car. I had VIP parking. And I got in my car. It was my first Los Angeles car. I think it was a Chevy Vega, really crummy car. And in my zeal to get away from them, instead of putting the car in reverse, I put it in forward and I smashed into the yellow partitions, like the two posts in front of the parking spot. Oh, no. In the front of my car. And then they came running up and I said, oh, it's OK, it's OK. And then I floored it and did the exact same thing again. <laughs> So the next time I was on Carson, they drove me. They were afraid to have me uh, in that condition again. So that's most memorable. I'm sorry it's a bad thing, but that tends to be the thing I remember. <laughs> no, not don't be sorry at all. It's a great story. Which stand-up comedian was the most different from their persona on stage versus off? Andy, I think. Andy Kaufman. Because off stage, he was like this shy, introverted guy, uh, kind of like a version of Lotka. Um, and then on stage, he had all this charisma and sex appeal. And I think the most fascinating thing about his first appearances doing the Mighty Mouse thing were the vast differential between his onstage and offstage persona. It was really remarkable. As I got to know him better in later years, he got more comfortable with me and he was like normal, like, you know, like you guys. Um, but when I first met him, he was like rigid. He was so like tense. So I think that was the most notable differentiation. And final thing, favorite moment of your career? It will be when I get my next great role. I can't wait to put my talent into some other role suitable for my age now, for my intelligence now, for my voice now. Um, and uh Tomorrow I'm auditioning for the national company of Funny Girl to play uh, Ruth Bryce, the mother of Funny Girl on the in the road on the road show. I don't know if that'll be it, but at least I'm having chances at that. I have a really good manager, and uh, hopefully she'll get me in on a thing that's absolutely the right intersection of my ability and the writing. We all dream of that as actors. Well, we're looking forward to that. And uh, before we let you go, can we talked a, a little bit about it already, but can you just um, tell our listeners a little bit more about your book and where they can find it? Oh, they can find it everywhere. <laughs> um, you know, if you hate Amazon, it's on Apple Books, Google Books, Kobo Books. Uh, I also recorded the audio book, which is available through Findaway Voices. It's available cheap all over the world. You can't get away from my book, actually. You trip over it after you go out your door. Um, it's it's everywhere. But I think the easiest place that your listeners might find it would be Amazon. Um, the Kindle's only $4.99 right now. But I recommend the audiobook because I perform the whole thing. It's eight hours. And if you're taking a long car ride, um, I'm really good company. And the book deals with 
becoming an actor before I was really a human being. And then learning what a human being was from the roles I played. You know, learning about morality and and conflict from you know classic plays like from Tennessee Williams and and O'Neill, um, and seeing the vast uh, spectrum of humanity I could embody. And for a while, it made me too liquid as a person because I knew all the possibilities that a human could in, in, embody, and I had access to all of them. And I think um. I may not have said this in my book. I didn't really know who I was until I was on Fridays and they gave me a name on the screen, Melanie Chardoff, the newscaster. And since they used my name, I had created a role for the newscaster who's much more put together than I am, much more articulate than I was. And I became that character. So that was the one that went on talk shows and dated and got married a few years ago. This is the person that speaks to you now. Well, yeah, I'm in the middle of the book right now, and I highly recommend it um, to all our listeners. Once again, it's Odd Woman Out, Exposure and Essays and Stories. And also, are you teaching classes now, did you mention? Well, I've taught a class called Charismatizing Improvising for many years. It's a a form of improv that I made up uh, to help people tap into their sex appeal and magnetism that they may not flex on an ordinary basis or for your permission to flex. And right now I'm doing it one-on-one. I don't have a class, but I'm coaching people from all over the world who want to pitch a new a, a new uh, entrepreneurial idea or who have to do book readings. They're very introspective writers and they have to go out on a book tour and they need to get a persona for that. I coach men that want to meet the, the love of their lives. Um, I've worked with people on the spectrum who have very frozen faces, uh, who have very frozen bodies who I teach to bring a certain human uh, receptivity to every interaction, whether they're going to connect with that person or not, always bring the willingness to connect. So um, I also work with young voiceover actors and young actors, and right now I'm doing it um, on Skype and Zoom. And people can reach me if they're interested in just talking about coaching at playdate444 at gmail.com. Well, Melanie... This was incredible. Uh, Really, thank you so much um, for sharing all these stories with us and for all the laughter and joy you've given us over the years. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. You guys are great. Oh, well, thank you for coming on and just telling us all your great stories. And yeah, it was so exciting to talk to you because not only you're such an important part of Seinfeld, obviously, and one of the greatest scenes of all time with George and you know, such a memorable episode, but you're also such an important part of so many, you know, 90s children's childhood as Dee Dee Pickles. So I think that really puts you on another plateau. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's so lovely. What a great tribute. Thank you. Good luck with your show. Thank Thanks. you. Have a great night. Bye. Have a good night. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at theplacetobeseinfeld at gmail.com. You can also find our show on Facebook at The Place to Be, a Seinfeld podcast, Twitter at tptbseinfeld, and Instagram at theplacetobe.podcast. You can find our show on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like, please rate and review. It really helps us out. Until next time, be sure to hang up your pants for the perfect crease. Robin? Robin? George, what, what is it? I'm working. Robin, listen to me. The most amazing thing has happened. Kramer has opened my eyes. I think I've changed. What are you talking about? Okay. I mean, Bozo the Clown. <laughs> I mean, does he really need the clown in his title uh, as clown, Bozo the Clown? Are we going to confuse him with Bozo the District Attorney? Bozo the Pope? There's no other Bozo. You'll see. Things will be different now if you just give me one more chance. L- listen, listen, I, 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 I got to think about this. All right, but I'm serious about this. All right, hand it over, man. That's why men hunt and women nest. He's got a gun! He's got a gun!
Cop comic? Oh, hi. I, did, I didn't recognize you. What is it? You get a haircut? Nostrils. George? Can I have a word? 